0: This morning we're continuing our series in First Peter. We'll looking at First Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 8 through 17. Um, and as we, uh, before we dive into this today, I want us to consider something, and that is a reality that I've heard many Christians talk about. Uh, uh, something that, that we see happening in our culture, which is that people are slipping further um, uh, our country is slipping further away from traditional Christian values, um, even just seeing them as, uh, as good. Um, that's something that, uh, that is a change. Like even if I, I kind of uh, always balk at the idea that like, oh, we used to be this great Christian nation. And it's like, not, not really. Not, not, not really was there ever this time where it was like the majority of people were truly following Jesus. But there was a time when most people thought that Christians were good. And most people thought that Christianity was good, that people that followed Jesus were good, that churches were good, um, that, that pastors were good, that all those things were like to be commended, that they would kind of be like, well, I know I should be doing that, but I'm not, right? That was kind of the idea that we had for a long time. And, and that's really, our country has drifted away from that. Our culture uh, just doesn't really see that uh, anymore. And I, I'll give you one concrete example of that. Um, is that uh, before I was pastor here, there was a, a Pastor Randy was the guy who was right before me. Um, most of you know him, um, and, and he always introduced himself like that. He always introduced himself as Pastor Randy it didn 't really matter where you were. You had a barbecue, the grocery store, hi I am Pastor Randy, always with the title, Pastor Randy. I, on the other hand, try when I meet someone new to see how long can I go before they know that I'm a pastor, right? And, and it's like a kind of a game because, and it's hard, because that's one of the first things people ask you is, what do you do? Um, and, and, and so I try to, I try, but I try to see how long can I go, and it has nothing to do with me being ashamed of being a pastor. It has nothing to do with me being ashamed of being a Christian. I am not any of those things, but... It's a missional strategy. It's, a, it's an intentional missional strategy to see how long can I go before this person knows that I'm a pastor. Because uh, if, they, if I can have some time with them before they find out that I'm a pastor, then they can find out that I'm a normal guy. Right? They can, decide that I, they can decide beforehand that, hey, he seems like a normal guy. He likes normal things. He's a, he's, I can talk to him. Um, and then they find out that I'm a pastor, and then they have to reconcile that in their own minds. <laughs> they have to kind of go like, okay, wait, how can he be normal and be a pastor? And then they have to like rework these things. It also, it also gives them an opportunity to curse around me before they find out that I'm a pastor. <laughs> which is just fun for me. I don't, I really don't mind. I'm not like, I'm really not somebody that, that like is super sensitive to that. It's not something, something I try to do a lot um, or at all. But, but, it's, but it, when somebody else does it, it doesn't bother me. But when they do it and then they find out that I'm a pastor, it really bothers them. And it's <laughs> so funny. They're like, oh, my god, oh, you're a pastor, oh. Know. You know, it's like, it's fun to watch that kind of like, they, they kind of going through like, what did I say? What have I said? Um, so anyway, that all to say, our culture has changed. And the question then is, how will we respond? And we really see Christians wrestling through that. How do we respond? And, and so many um, are really actively fighting to get it back, Right? You don't want to be a, a doormat. You want to fight for what you believe. You want to fight for that what you believe is good is good. Um, and, and we see this, this kind of battle going on. And, and just generally wrestling with how do we cope with this new reality in which we might not be seen as the paragon of morality? How do we respond? And I really think that that's what Peter is addressing here in this section because he's writing to people who are being persecuted Uh, And he's kind of talking to them in this section about how do they respond to a culture that does not view them that way, that does not view them as good. So we'll get into this here first, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter starts off by addressing all of you, right? He says, finally, all of you. And he'd been addressing specific groups of people. Now he's letting them know this is for everybody. This is for all believers should exhibit these traits. Unity of mind is the first one that he brings up. And this is a common theme throughout the epistles. The apostle Paul also um, remarks on on this idea of having unity of mind. And when we consider what does unity of mind mean? It's, it's kind of a complicated thing. It's like, Wait, are we supposed to, I'm supposed to agree with everybody on everything? Um, and, and obviously not, right? Obviously no. There, there are things that we're going to disagree about, right? There are things that we're going to disagree about. You know, there are a lot of superficial things we're going to disagree with, about. What's your favorite color? What's your favorite ice cream flavor, Right. Are the Dodgers the best team in baseball? Yes, yes, you know, those kind of things. Um, so there are things that we're going to disagree about, But the question of having unity of mind is being united around the most important things, being united around the central truths of the gospel, being united around our mission to take that gospel to the world, being united around the the core truths of of our statement of faith, the things that we need to believe, right? Those things, if if we're united on those things, then the other things don't matter. Then, if we disagree about other things, it doesn't matter whether we disagree about smaller things if we agree on the big things, and if we agree that they are the big things. Or if we agree that, that the gospel matters more than all these other things that might happen. So if we have that unity of mind, if we have that unity of mind, we're united around those big things. The second thing he asks us to, be, uh, to have all believers to have in common is sympathy. Sympathy is the ability to understand how someone feels. And that ability is sorely lacking in our world today. And it's primarily lacking because we've decided that so many issues, so many issues um, belong in, in one of two extremes. Right? In any particular issue, you have to have this extreme opinion or this extreme opinion. Right? And if you drift anywhere in the middle, both sides accuse you of being on the other side. You're all the way on the other side if you're not all the way with them. So there's extreme opinions. And then in addition to having these extreme opinions, we also decide that if you're over here, if you're in this camp, if you're on this team, then you have to hate the other team. And you also have to view them as inhuman. And anyone who holds an opinion other than the opinion that me and my group holds is a monster, and I cannot possibly understand how someone would agree with that, right? I cannot possibly understand how someone would, would, would like that, that thing. And, and, and that is an entire lack of sympathy. It's not understanding how anybody else believes or feels. But even, it, it doesn't hurt you, it doesn't hurt you at all, or your opinion, or your belief system to say, I can understand how someone who disagrees with me believes, even on a moral issue, right? Even on an issue of morality where you go, I I think this is 100% wrong, I think that, that there is no question in my mind, in my heart, in, in, in everything that I believe, this is wrong. And you got someone on this other side who's saying, I think it's okay. I think it's right, and in fact, I think that we, sh- we should do it. It doesn't hurt you or compromise your belief that that thing is wrong to say, I can understand how someone would feel that way. And to kind of go through that, that mentality, that, 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 that mental exercise of going, okay, someone over here, how would they be thinking, what would they be going through to, to feel that way? How would they, what is going on in their heart and their mind that they can justify this thing that I believe is so utterly morally wrong? Where are they at in their mind? That's sympathy, right? Being able to understand how someone else feels. And if we can bring that, it's so useful in our world today because it's something that is so lacking in our culture that if we can can bring that in, it, it can be so valuable to us. Because if you maintain this cultural thing of anyone who's on the other side is inhumane, and and a monster you're never going to reach them for christ you're never going to save them if you feel like hey my camp my group we all agree and and so we are the people that matter and those people are monsters and so they don't matter that's not somebody you're ever going to reach with the gospel that's not somebody you're ever going to take the love of jesus to You have to view them as somebody that Jesus died for, as someone that Jesus gave his life for, that Jesus loves. And so can we have that sympathy? Can we have that love that Jesus had for them? That's really the question when we bring in this this sympathy. Is this somebody that we can bring the love of Jesus to? He also tells us to have brotherly love, and this is obviously within and for one another, We need to have brotherly love because we've been adopted into the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are, in fact, in the church, blood-related. It just happens to be the blood of Jesus that relates us, but we should have that brotherly love for one another. And this is something that that Peter harps on um, even earlier. He talked about having that and finding comfort in the body of Christ and among our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we face persecution, as the world continually moves further from the church, and as persecution may even increase, it's something that we desperately need to have is a place where we feel at home, where we are united, where we experience brotherly love. He also tells us to have a tender heart. And that's a scary thing, right? To have a tender heart is a scary thing because if your heart is tender, that means it is vulnerable. That means you are open to being hurt. Requires vulnerability. And so it can be scary, but it is specifically what Jesus did, right? He came and was vulnerable and was hurt. It's living the way that Jesus lived is to have a tender heart. He also tells us to have a humble mind. And being humble about our thoughts and beliefs and ideas also requires vulnerability. And again, it's contrary to the way that the world is right now, the way that our culture is right now. You do not be humble about your ideas, about your beliefs. You hold them firmly and strongly and without question. But Peter tells us here to be humble have a humble mind and to recognize that we might be wrong. To be willing to admit our own doubts. He also tells them not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And again, this is contrary to the way that the world works, right? Right now, you expect someone to argue, expect someone to answer back. Or it actually feels even weak to not do so. Right? We have that, the whole culture of online of, of clapping back. Somebody clapped back. Right? Like coming back at somebody for something they said to you. It is the way of the world right now. And he's saying we need to not do that. We need to not answer back to somebody else. We need to not repay evil for evil. When someone reviles us, we don't need to revile them in return. Because Jesus was reviled and he did not revile in return. He is is our example. And he actually tells us that on the contrary, instead of reviling for reviling, that when someone reviles us, we should bless them. In response to being reviled, we are to bless our reviler. These are the kind of things that Jesus commanded us in the Sermon on the Mount, where he tells people to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, all those things. It's also something that was commanded by Paul where he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Peter is demonstrating the fact that this is not just a countercultural way of living. It's actually God's way of living. It's God's way. And so he quotes Psalm 34. In verses 10 through 12, he's actually quoting from Psalm 34. And he's reading directly from that, that this is what God has commanded us to do. That he's promised that this is the way to enjoy our lives and find favor with God. That when we watch what we say, and we watch what we do, we will see good days and, and God will listen to our prayers. We'll look next year at verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So he starts with this question, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? Who would possibly harm you? In general, people support supports you if you're doing something good. Even if you're a Christian, even if you are, are part of the church, there is no one that's going to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good. And we see this in practice that there are, that, that like when I talk to people about like what we do at Wednesday Club, that we, you know, have this outreach to the school and we do this after school program, even if they're not Christians, they think that's great. Right? They say, oh, that's awesome. You're doing that and helping those kids. they having a safe place for them to come. They're not necessarily that excited about the Bible lesson part, but like they think it's good. Where when I talk to people about the fact that we open our church up for the nomadic shelter in the winters, they think, hey, that's great that you do that. Right? There are things that, in general, everybody thinks are good. And there's no one that would harm you if you're zealous for doing that. That's what, and, and, and even ask that as a question. It's like, who would, who would possibly do that but then notice the very next verse, he says, but even if. Right? But he's recognizing there are people who will. There are people who will come after you, even if you're zealous for doing what is good. It's not universally true. But he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He's telling us that it's worth pursuing what is good, even when we suffer for it even when we suffer for it, because whatever consequences we might face here and now are not worth comparing to the reward that is waiting for us. So he tells them, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Says we don't need to be afraid of the trouble that we might face in this world, because we know that this world is temporary. That's part of the, the basis of this, of not being afraid of persecution, not being afraid of a harm uh, of all of these things is because this is not all there is. It's not even the majority of it. We should not fear even death because we have placed our hope in the kingdom of God. And we recognize that when Jesus returns and makes all things new and ushers in his eternal kingdom, that is where most of our time will be spent by percentage. It's nothing that we spend here. It says we should honor Christ as holy we should recognize and live in a way that reflects the holiness of Christ. That the holiness of Christ is his purity and his exclusivity. And if we are honoring Christ as holy, it means we're acknowledging him for who he is, that we live in response to what he has done. We recognize him as being unique. Then he tells us this in verse 15. He says, "Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you." And and and, uh, and this this week, um, I had a chance to to practice. I was, I was uh, Pastor Jason and I and Quinn and uh, and a couple of our other leaders, Jim Hubert uh, and uh, and Jeff Prather. We we took the kids uh, out for this uh, summer camp for the youth group. We did a summer camp on Monday through, through Thursday morning. Um, and, and Jim Hebert ended up having to leave early. He got sick and he had to leave. And, and he was supposed to, to share his testimony that night. And I had been like finding a little time to like get away and, and write the sermon um, early, earlier in the day and, and the day before. Um, and, and so then Jason's like, hey, Jim was supposed to share his testimony. Would you be able to do it instead since he had to leave? And I was like, well, I just wrote this sermon about always being prepared to make a defense. So I I guess I have to, you know. He's like, I don't, he's like, is it too short notice? I'm like, well, I have to always be prepared. So I think I have to. So this is a a, a favorite verse, um, really among uh, apologists. Apologists are people who, who make um, a defense for the faith, right? They're, 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 and, and they primarily get into a lot of the, the factual stuff, like how, can we, um, uh, how can, can we prove our faith, right? What elements of our faith can we prove, or can we find evidence, all of these things. And, and there's great value in that, right? There's great value uh, in that work that apologists do. We ought to know why we believe what we believe. So a couple of examples, it's valuable, for example, to know the evidence behind Jesus as a historical figure. There are people who try to claim that Jesus never actually existed, that he's not a historical figure. But serious historians will tell you that, no, there is good evidence that Jesus was a historical figure. Even if they don't believe in him, they'll say, yes, there was certainly a man who lived that, that, that called himself Jesus of Nazareth. Right, they would say that there is factual evidence for that. That's just outside of the Bible. right? So there's, you can come up with these, this factual evidence. Another example would be that it's valuable to, to look into the history and the formulation of the Bible itself. How was the Bible itself constructed? The Bible that you hold today, how did that come to be? Because there's a lot of people who would tell you that it was just like made up and that it's very recently made up and... Uh, and that there's it's, it's not really ancient and all those kind of things, and they'll try to say there's all kinds of errors in it. But again, serious um, scholars of ancient literature, just as literature, just as books and writings, they're actually in awe of how reliable and consistent the Bible is compared to other ancient texts that have much more variability, far fewer copies, all these kind of things. So there's value in that, in doing that work and being able to, to know it and all those kind of things. But I don't, I don't know that that's what this verse is saying. I don't really know that that's what this verse is talking about. I, again, I think it's very valuable. I think it's important that there are people that want to go out there and do that work. But I don't think that every Christian needs to do that based on this verse. Because this is not the end of the verse. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is what he's asking you to be ready to, to give, is a reason for the hope that is in you. And I just, I've yet to hear a testimony. I've yet to hear a testimony in which someone says, well, um, here, how did I meet Jesus? Oh, I was... I was having this debate with a Christian, and man, if their facts weren't so good and and their, and their, their thoughts so well formulated, that I just I, at the end of the debate, I said, "You know what? I'm wrong, and I 'm a Christian now. I haven 't heard that yet. I never heard someone say, yeah, I was, uh, I was just arguing with this Christian friend of mine. I was an atheist, and I was arguing with this Christian friend of mine, and then he just made so many good points that it convinced me. And I said, oh, yeah, I was, I'm a Christian now. Or, hey, I had posted this thing on Facebook, and then, man, if the comment section didn't just, wasn't just the, the best, and it just changed, I deleted the post, and I said, no, no I'm a Christian now i've not, I've never heard that I, I I would love it I'm looking for it. Let me know if you know somebody that was argued into being a Christian, but i've never heard it i the only The only examples that I know of something even close to that are guys who argued themselves into it right There's two guys that I know, Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel, who set out to write books disproving Christianity and then they ended up like becoming Christians as a result of it, right? And, and they're big fans of apologetics and, and they're really big into apologetics. And I think it's great. Again, I don't have any problem with apologetics, but they argued themselves into it, right? By, by just finding how thin the arguments were, they tried to find. I just, I don't know anybody that that based on facts and, and arguments, and evidence became a Christian. What people need to hear is this, the reason that you have hope because of Jesus. They need to know why. Why did you become a Christian? Why do you have hope in Jesus? Why do you believe in Jesus? And, and often you'll say like, yeah, I'm not the best, but, but, my, I, but my reasons aren't that good. Or my reasons aren't that good, or the, my arguments aren't that good, or I can't really defend my faith. If someone pushes me or asks me questions, I'm going to have to say, I don't know. And I'll tell you, that's fine. It's fine for you to do that. It's fine for you to say, I don't know. It's fine for you to say, I'm not really sure. Here's why I believe. Here's what Jesus does for me. Here's when I encounter Jesus in my life, and here's what he's done in my life since then. And here's how I interact with him on a daily, weekly basis. How he moves in my life. That's the stuff that people want to hear. And and that's why there's no excuse, right? You all have the reason that you have hope. What is it? What's the reason for the hope that is in you? He then gives us some instruction for giving our personal defense of our faith that we must do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. You should always remember that the people that we're talking to, right? If you're telling a non-Christian, somebody who doesn't, is yet to believe in Jesus, you're telling them about why you're a Christian, they might not respond with enthusiasm. Right? They might not be excited about it. They might not change like that because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Right? They are dead. You don't, they're spiritually dead. They don't have the ability to celebrate that with you until the Holy Spirit regenerates them. So whenever you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you always have to be praying that the Holy Spirit does his work too, because if he doesn't, nothing is gonna happen. It doesn't matter if you're Billy Graham. It doesn't matter who, the the best evangelist in the world cannot change a person without the Holy Spirit's work. And the worst evangelist in the world can with this Holy Spirit's work. It has nothing to do with our presentation. It has everything to do with whether the Holy Spirit moves in that person to regenerate them, make them alive. So we have to do it with gentleness and respect. It's, there's always faith involved. However, convinced we are in our belief in Jesus, it still involves faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, it tells us that. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It is by faith that we believe these things. He tells us that we should leave all of these interactions with non-believers with a good conscience. We should feel confident that even if they try to slander us, our behavior will hold up to scrutiny. So I was, um, a couple weeks ago, I was in a a, a text message conversation with a a non-believer, with somebody who was um, uh, not just a a non-believer, like actively, aggressively Um, anti-Christian. And they seemed to want to text with me. I didn't, I didn't particularly want to text with them. Um, and, and and people told me, like, well, why don't you just block him? And I'm like, well, I, maybe this is what he needs to do. I don't know. Like, I don't know how Jesus is going to work in this guy's life, but, like, I, I'm just going to only answer back when he contacts me. I'm not going to, like, anything, but, like, I'll, and I'll try to respond. I'm just going to respond in love and and answer his questions when he asks them and those kind of things. But But throughout this, he's like cursing me. Um, I mean like calling me all kinds of names and, and doing all these kind of things. And, and I'm just only responding back in in loving ways and, um, and answering his questions to the, the best way that I can, those kind of things. Um, and then at some point he said, uh, he said, I just want you to know, I think I told you that I'm writing a book. And uh, and I want you to know that everything that you've said, uh, that our text message conversation will be in, included in the book, and you will look stupid, is what he wrote. In there. And so I said, thanks for letting me know. Uh, I'm okay with that. Because I have no problem. Like, the only thing that bums me out about that is that no one's reading this book. <laughs> right? Like... <laughs> That's the only thing that bums me out is that, like, is, that, is that no one will see it. I'm like, can we take out billboards or something? I'd love for everyone to see this. Because I have, I have no problem with what I've said. I think you would have some problems with what you've said. <laughs> like, There's one example I wanted to give you, but I, I don't know how I can do it. Um, <laughs> so I said, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll just try it. I'll see. <laughs> I said, um, I love you and God loves you. Uh, I'm so sorry you're hurting right now. And he responded in all caps, F you dumbass. <laughs> That's how he responded. So I'm like, yeah, I'm fine with you printing that. I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not, I don't look bad there. You do. Right? I had a good I have a good conscience about how. I handled that situation. And that should be as we consider, like, would that be the case every time? Like and any, any interaction you have, would you be okay if everyone saw it? Would you say, I'm comfortable with that as a believer that what I have done, what I have said is defensible, is, uh, would hold up to scrutiny? He says, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And he actually says in that section that it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And telling us that sometimes it is God's will that we would suffer for doing good. Sometimes it's within God's will that we would suffer for doing good. This was certainly true of Jesus, certainly true of the apostles, certainly true of the Old Testament prophets, certainly true of many missionaries throughout history. So that in fact, when we suffer for doing what is good, we're in good company. We should practically consider it an honor that we would suffer for doing what is good. If we retaliate instead, we have lost our chance, our opportunity to suffer for the kingdom of God. Wrap up with this. How should we then live? Three takeaways for today's message Number one, um, intentionally work to cultivate unity, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And we might consider how, which of those are we most lacking in, right? Think of it as like, okay, when when I read over that list, which is the one where I go, yeah, that's probably where I'm low, or that's probably where it doesn't, it's not that strong in me. And then pray, talk to the Holy Spirit about how can we work on that? Can you convict my heart on that? Is that something that we can cultivate? Number two, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And again, that's specific to each person. Really, I mean, the the truth of the gospel is the same, but specifically how Jesus has worked in your life specifically um, is unique. And it's something that is worth sharing, that people need to know, want to know. So work on that, kind of consider what would be the bullet points. You don't really want it to sound scripted, right? That, that you would like launch into a sales pitch, essentially, when someone asks you. But what would be the main things? What would be the highlights of the things that you would want to share with someone? And then third, be willing to suffer for the kingdom of God, just like Jesus. I'm going to pray here in just a second. And then we'll take communion together. And then we'll sing one final song. And then after the songs... Um, We'll have a prayer team that will be right over here. They would love to pray for you. Um, So if you'd like prayer for anything, come up and and they would love to pray with you. Would you bow with me now? Father, we thank you for uh, this word from uh, Peter. And I pray that we would um, cultivate unity of mind, brotherly love, sympathy, a tender heart, a humble mind. That those would be traits that, that people would say that we exhibit. I pray that each person here would, would be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in them. And God, if it is your will that we would suffer for doing good. I pray that we would do so um, gladly, that we would choose to suffer for you. I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.